Hello everyone. Um, sorry about being a little bit late today. Um, might as well clear up a few things. Um, my name is obviously Hardy. I'm uh, I graduated from the University of Nottingham with a politics degree. Uh, I graduated in September. So I'm not, I'm not really used to chairing, so bear with me and forgive me for my mistakes. Uh, I haven't bought a notepad and I'm not really prepared for this like everyone else is. So uh, I'm going to kind of be fast and move on and get everyone else talking so you guys can have a great night. So we have Amit first, right? Yeah. You ready, Amit? Yeah. Do you want me to just... I want you to just go ahead with this one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. Um, I was going to start with... Obviously, it's going to a school in sort of East London, it was predominantly... I don't think this is working. It's, it's on. It doesn't matter how much. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's all right. I don't need them. Um, so, yeah, one of my white friends took me to meet some of his other white friends. And it all seemed quite normal. And he said, like, this is my friend Amit. He's all right for a packet. And I was a bit like, oh, like... With friends like these, who needs enemies? <laughs> and I was really like, at the time, I was sort of like, all right, this is cool, like, they're all white people, I'm just going to blend in and just sort of deal with it. But like, looking back, it was quite like a critical introduction and like what he meant by like being all right for a packy. And obviously, he meant that being a packy's not all right, but I was all right for one. And he meant because of the way I look, because of the sort of way I dress, because of the way I speak, because I don't wear a turban. And because I don't have a thick accent, I was acceptable. But at the same time as he was calling me a packy, other people in my class would call me a coconut. The sort of other sort of Asian kids in the class. But what he meant by calling me all right for a packy is that he meant that I was sort of tolerated, I was acceptable, I was an acceptable face of being like Indian because of like gaining a level of proximity to whiteness. Whereas someone like my dad who wore a turban would have been seen as like just a packy, so not even all right for it. And you see, like, there's a great deal of success South Asians can have in British society by gaining proximity to whiteness. And a good example is probably Sajid Javid, the business secretary for the Conservative Party. Um, brought up in a Muslim family, he's distanced himself from that now. He's got a Christian family, he talks about Christianity being important. And because of that, he's been accepted by a racist, white Westminster establishment. And he's not, to be, not seeming to be that bothered by the sort of racist, xenophobic, and Islamophobic policies that his party are pushing through. We've also got Sadiq Khan and the Labour Party arguably also gaining this proximity. And the problem is that one of the greatest legacies of colonialism and racism is the way in which people like myself when I was younger to a large degree have internalised it to the extent where I saw British culture as being better, Western culture as being superior, so that I didn't have a turban like my father. I didn't want one at the time because I thought it was bad, I thought I wouldn't fit in. And I wouldn't have been accepted by my friends or by his white friends. And I think that the fact that now I don't speak any South Asian languages, I've got a serious cultural disconnect. It's because of it I don't have a beard, and it was never wanted one. And it's important the way in which like, the cultural reference points we have as South Asians in Britain are quite limiting. Like East is East was quite a popular film at one point, and in many ways it perpetuated negative stereotypes about South Asians. Like, as a standalone film, it wouldn't be that bad, but there's no real other like, counter-narratives. All we hear about is honour killings, homophobia amongst South Asians in Britain. Um, forced marriages. We hear about like the, the idea of British people, British Indians, is the sort of native savage. No longer are they coming to like India and calling us savages, but they're doing it while we're over here. And it might not be as overt as that, but in many ways multiculturalism and the way of making us all right for a packy is a sort of new civilising mission that's taken over since the end of the British Raj. And we're never told about the great advancements that South Asians make to British society, 
also the auto society as a whole and modern civilization, the great Indian mathematicians or philosophers. I mean, T.S. Eliot said that the great Indian philosophers make European ones look like schoolboys, but you wouldn't learn that at a white curriculum at Oxford. Instead, we're taught that Pakis can't think. And I guess at the end, I'd say that, like, in a multiculturalist Britain, white people want to pick and choose aspects of South Asian society that they deem acceptable. They want to be able to have a curry on Brick Lane and then go and smash each other up in a nightclub afterwards. They want to sort of let us wear our traditional clothing on Diwali as long as we put it away, put it down in the bottom drawer after that, turn up to work in our Western clothing the next day and talk in English, never to be heard outside of our houses speaking in South Asian languages. And I say that the real enemy for someone like me is not someone on the street who calls me a Paki. It's not the seven-year-old in my class when I was a kid that said, go home, Paki. That's just a seven-year-old child. He doesn't know anything about it. The real enemy is the sort of rich, white establishment in this country who benefited greatly from the colonialization of South Asia and the rest of the world, who still continue to benefit from neo-imperial policies, and who perpetuate divide and rule, both in South Asia and both among South Asian communities in the UK, amongst different classes in the UK, and who perpetuate anti-black narratives, Islamophobic narratives that unfortunately get taken up by members of the Sikh community. My namesake, Amit Singh, for example, headed the EDL's Nottingham division, which is obviously incredibly problematic. Uh, for me, uh, I guess. Um, and these people let us think that colonialism's over. They let us think that racism doesn't exist. They trick us into believing that we have a post-racial society. They trick us into believing that we can be accepted. But you only have to look at Amir Khan, arguably the greatest British boxer of our generation, who wore a Pakistan flag on his shorts as well as a British flag. And because of that, was never accepted by the British press. Instead, he ended up moving to America to get away from it all. And I'd like to end with a quote uh, from the great post-colonial thinker that is my dad. <laughs> who, um, who said to me, he said, Amit, it doesn't matter how you dress, it doesn't matter how you speak, it doesn't matter what school you went to or what university you went to, to them, you'll always be a packy and they'll always think they're better than you, but they're wrong. That's it, yeah. That was a really incredible man, I And I can resonate with it as well, I had exactly the same experience as growing up in school. Just a package. Um, okay, yeah, next, Ash, are you ready? Yeah, I mean, I was about to say I feel sorry for the person who has to follow that. <laughs> God, it's me. Um, so, first up, thanks for having me here. It's amazing and also terrifying to see such a full room on a Friday night to talk about liberation politics. I feel there's been like a really lively um, resurgence of interest in liberation politics and decolonising our mind society has been a huge part of that. They've just been killing it with the events recently. Um, I, I kind of think a mark of their success is how many people come on dates here on Friday night. <laughs> um, I'm not trying to out anyone here, but <laughs> so I'm gonna. I'm not really gonna focus on personal experiences so much because um, I'm, I'm not as like funny or as entertaining as our other panelists here. What I want to do is think about how do we frame uh, racism experienced by South Asians and also perpetuated by. South Asians, how do we make sense of this politically? How do we make sense of this historically? And I guess the central thing kind of running through the um, like weird spider diagrams of notes that I have is um, how do we acknowledge the importance of a homogenizing racist gaze? So 
the gaze which looks at us and says you're, you're all the same there's no cultural distinctiveness among you um, <coughs> so how do we recognize that that's important and an important part of our own experience without reproducing it ourselves with our own understanding of racism how that works um, so that's that's the theme that's going to be uh, running through this and so I think like the first thing to emphasize is that South Asians in this country are not the product of, of a, a single colonial relation. It's multiple colonial relations. Multiple waves of migration brought South Asians to this country. And that's really important for thinking in terms of how do different South Asian groups experience racism, who experiences the sharpest end of racism, if you like, and who's got the power to uh, uh, oppress others in turn. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot recently is how come there's such a gulf between uh, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis in terms of being overrepresented in the prison population, uh, being overrepresented in terms of unemployment. Um, it's at the last week that I read that came out in 2014, it was 46% unemployment for Bangladeshi and Pakistani youth, uh, <coughs> compared to 45% black and 19% white. Why is there so much difference between, that, between uh, those particular groups and other South Asians? One of the major things you could say is, well, access to capital. It's a huge difference. Groups that tend to be working class tend to have, <coughs> not to have great access to education, to healthcare, good quality housing, and are the victims of long entrenched social, social and economic inequalities. Um, and then you have to frame this in terms of waves of, waves of Immigration, right? So different groups tend to arrive at different times. Um, one of the things that I was reading about recently was not just in terms of direct immigration from India, the subcontinent, to this country, but how it kind of got mediated through the Caribbean and also Africa. Um, not sure how many of you have read a book called The Lonely Londoners by Sam Salvon. Um, some of that is great, right? <coughs> so sick. Um, so Sam Salvan was uh, Indo-Trinidadian, right? So he was descended from indentured labourers who were brought over from India after the end of slavery because there was a huge demand for cheap labour in terms of, in terms of uh, sugarcane, coffee, yada, yada, yada. And when you look at his sense of his own Trinidadianness, he aligns himself much closer to the experiences of black people than other Indo-Trinidadians did, right? So then you've got the V.S. Naipaul's of the world who, aside from writing terrible no novels, um, also very racist, particularly against black people. And the V.S. Naipaul's of the world tend to be descended from like the petty bourgeois. So the people who enjoyed a modicum of economic and social privilege vis-a-vis um, -vis black people, but still not <coughs> as much as you know the European settlers, the European colonial administration. Um, so picking up on this point of divide and conquer, it was an extraordinarily effective tactic um, in terms of the running of the colonies, in terms of getting South Asians to be complicit in the same racist structures that dispossessed them, by giving us just a little bit more than in particularly black people. Um, we had a vested interest in maintaining those structures. Another good example is South Asians and their participation in apartheid, particularly um, 1949 and before that. Um, so I think that's one thing to really emphasize. And again, this thing of divide and conquer, this, this is played out in this country time and again. Um, in 1985, that was obviously the summer of riots. Um, my grandma and my mum describe it as the best summer of their life because the board of farm riots. Like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> granny. Um, so one of the lesser known riots was the um, Hansworth riots in Birmingham. 
And uh, during those riots, there were two South Asian men who were killed, who were burnt to death in um, a post office. And when this happened, both the Conservative Party and the national press seized on it. They said, well, look at, look at what's happened here. There's a race war between the pathologically criminal, the lazy, the aggressive West Indians, and the hardworking Asian community here. So it's another strategy of divide and conquer, where these riots were actually the product of racist policing, racist policing which affected both South, South Asians and West Indians. Um, <coughs> chronic, m like mass unemployment, social inequality, bad housing, bad education, which affects both these groups. The first thing that the Conservative Party and national media did was turn these groups against each other. And it's, it's, it's still effective to this day. I think that one of the things we really have to recognize as South Asian people is our complicity in anti-black racism. Um, one of the th one of the one of the more telling Gandhi quotes. Uh, this is uh, something that he wrote when he was in South Africa in I think 1905. Was um, ours as one continued struggle sought to be inflicted on us by the Europeans who desire to degrade us to the level of the raw kaffir whose occupation is hunting and whose sole ambition is to pass his life in indolence and nakedness. Um, and also, indolence and nakedness sounds great, by the way. Um, <laughs> But central to his understanding of what emancipated Indian selfhood was, was differentiating him himself, the Indian self, from blacks. And that's something that we really have to reject. Um, I'm aware of only got two minutes left. I would say that that shifted in a big way. Now, South Asian respectability is not so much tied up in a fear of proximity to blackness. I would say proximity to Muslimness is starting to creep in and take control there. Um, one of the things that you see in, you know, kind of like liberal lefty circles is, oh, racists are stupid because they'll think a Sikh is the same thing as a Muslim. They see a turban and think it's Muslim, isn't that funny? It's like, well, are you saying that we're right because we're Muslim? And we, we buy into this. We say racism is stupid because it homogenizes us, not because racism is wrong and it's disempowering, it's a force of oppression. I think that's something that we really need to reject. Um, wrapping up my comments briefly, um, I think we need to think about what we want, what we prioritise politically. Do we want recognition or do we want resistance? My personal opinion is fuck recognition. Um, I think what we need to be agitating for is resisting racist power structures and key political demands there would be looking at prison organising, demanding an end to immigration detention and fighting gentrification, which I think is a form of colonialism as it plays out in the city, particularly against communities of colour. Um, I think we need to stop distancing ourselves from other people of colour, particularly black people, particularly Muslims, and look at their fights as our fights. Um, also biased because I'm a terrible Muslim, but I still am one. Um, we need to reject the logic of liberal nationalism. We need to reject the politics that says if you widen participation, you increase our access to capital, and we will disavow, we will disavow the undesirable members of our community then, then we're happy with that. No, I think we need to talk about a confrontational, aggressive, militant, anti-nationalism and anti-racism. Embedded in that, I think, is anti-capitalism. I think meaningful anti-racism is by its nature anti-capitalist and vice versa. And uh, yeah, just more fucking shit. <laughs> if someone calls to prevent, I'm gonna be screwed, but. <laughs> yeah.
blame the organisers. <coughs> but you guys have been incredible so far. Thank you very much. Uh, next up, Mr. Shirin. Thanks, Shirin. Um, I came into this country exactly 50 years ago this month. When I was only seven years old. And um, people talk of the word Paki uh, as a simple abuse term. Of all the racial slurs that were directed against us in the 70s, 80s, right up to the 90s, far from the end word, Paki was the most alarming and dangerous. Paki wasn't the only thing that we were called. Wolves, coons, nignogs were very common. Um, I think people can hear me, right? Paki okay. um, was the most dangerous alarming. This associated with that abuse was the threat of imminent danger, an attack on you. And Paki was associated with Paki bashing, where white skinheads went around hunting for packets. And on a fateful night in 1973, I, along with my nephew, was stabbed by skinheads in Nelson and Lancashire. And I think the generation that belonged to me, my age, in Lancashire and Yorkshire and London Southeast, at least 80% of us, men and women, suffered that kind of thing. Now, some things have changed, but some things have remained the same. <coughs> Racial violence still is a massive problem. But its foundation is state racism, which drives popular racism and institutional racism. And I want to look at the problem of racism through my own experience and as the coordinator and director of the monitoring group, which since 1970s have had victims of racism. And I have coordinated <coughs> campaigns around the Stephen Lawrence case, Zaid Mubarak, and I dealt with the 7-7 seven, seven victims. And tomorrow we'll launch a campaign in Rotherham, and I'll speak about that in a minute. So I want to look at the issue of race as a movement that drives and develops in the 70s right up to the present period. In the 70s and 80s, it wasn't marginalized. It was in the mainstream, not just in the political and social circles, in the cultural phenomena. One of the iconic musicians this country holds dear is Eric Clapton. And in 1976, in the middle of a concert, he stopped playing. And this is what he said. And I'll just read to you his speech in 1976, exactly 40 years ago. And he's not apologized for this diatribe. Do we have any foreigners in this audience tonight? This is Eric Clapton. If so, please put your hands up. Walks, I mean. Packets. I'm looking at you. Where are you? Where are you? Well, wherever you are, I think you should all leave. Not just leave the hall. Leave our country. You fucking passes. It goes on for four and a half minutes. And I'm not going to read it all. This is Eric Clapton, who then played with Bob Marley <laughs> and all sorts of songs. What's going we, saw, we saw her the death of, uh, you know, iconic band leaders this year. David Bowie is one of them. David Bowie 
in the 70s, flirted with fascism and Nazism with his loot. He had the generosity of admitting his mistake and said he moved on, unlike Clapton, who still holds those views. So it's mainstream, not marginalized. Becky bashing was a national sport that many people of South Asian origin suffered, regardless of whether they were Muslim, Hindu, Sikhs, or people who possessed no religion whatsoever. Your face was your passport. They looked at you, and they didn't want you. But we want, we want massive struggles. We are in this meeting today, and I haven't spoken to a meeting like that for many years, our students, few of them. Because the struggles that were waged by our generation were successful. Let me give you an example. This is the 40th <coughs> anniversary of the Chukka murder in Southall, out of which came the Southall youth, youth movements, which flourished. And we fought against Kinnats. In 1981, in Southall, we burned down Hambro Tavern because the Skinheads played there. We've never seen Skinheads in Southall since 1981. <laughs> we led that struggle. In 81, on the 11th of November, 11 people in Bradford made petrol bombs because they feared the National Front, a fascist organization, was coming. They got arrested, charged with conspiracy charges, almost akin to terrorist offenses. We won the battle for self-defense. The Bradford 12 case, fought in Leeds Crown Court, is the epitome of what the def legal definition of self-defense is. We won on the Lawrence I dealt with the Lawrence case from 1993 when Stephen Lawrence was murdered by racists. It took us 19 years to convict the suspects. But it's recommended to see changes to different authorities and changes. Zayed Mubarak was a young 60-year-old in Falcon Young Offenders Institute. Went into prison for stealing six pounds of razor blades. He was put in with a racist <coughs> psychopath, Robert Stewart, who wrote 220 letters, every single one signed by a swastika. And a month before he killed Zayed on 21st of March 2000, he gave a chilling description of how he would kill Zayed, to put a pillowcase on him with a cross, Kukakastan's style, and walk across. The prison authorities failed to prevent that murder. We had a public inquiry which developed changes into the prison system. Institutional racism and murder have been won through struggles by people in our communities. Problem is, these struggles haven't been recorded and written. We don't refer to them. We haven't learned from them, and we haven't developed a systematic narrative on how these jigsaw struggles have won and developed a larger battle for equality and for justice. There are more young people in Feltham in prison at Young Offenders Institute than in universities, both black and Asian, at this time. There are more young people under antisocial behavior orders living on sink estates who happen to be from black and Asian communities than going to high-level schools or doing A-levels. <coughs> so what needs to be done? And I only have another minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think 
in terms of the South Asian communities, we need to learn what our legacies are. In the 70s and 80s and 90s and tomorrow, for example, when we launched the Rodham 11 defense campaign, you know, Rodham is known for grooming. There are Pakistani individuals who have been charged with grooming. And some of them are guilty of that. There's no question about it. But the whole community has stigmatized. They're not just cattle during demonstrations. They're cattle in their houses and shops. They don't come out. In the last year in Rodham, there have been 12 demonstrations by the far right, first by EDA and then by Britain first. On 5th of September, for the first time, the Pakistani community came out. Despite police assurances that they could leave after the demonstration, the Britain first people in a pub heard racial abuse, and it's on CCTV cameras, packings, walks, terrorists, etc. A fight ensued, and 11 of them have been charged with rioting. And if they are found guilty, they'll spend eight years in prison. So racism in that decisive form, in that most violent, brutal form, from the state, hasn't shifted. If you are a community that is seen as suspect, stigmatized, and criminalized. Give me another example. And this is the point you made. <coughs> Yesterday, I met in South, where I live, Hindu temple leaders who had invited Tommy Robinson <laughs> to address a meeting on Valentine's Day in South about multiculturalism. <laughs> Tommy Robinson, the leader of the India. This is an invitation by a group of Hindus, and I'm Hindu who support Modi, who are part of the Hindutva, who want India to be a Hindu Raj, at the expense of every single other minority, who are growing in numbers in this country for intolerance, has managed to persuade them not to have Tommy Robinson and cancel the meeting. But the lines are being divided, and not clear cut, on religious lines, on fundamentalist lines, rather than on the basis of solidarity. So the first thing we have to do if we are really serious about addressing the issue of racism, which is resurging because of the so-called war and migrant crisis and the growth of the far right across Europe, is to build a table of solidarity amongst us, irrespective of our religions. And if somebody comes from a Muslim, regardless of me being not a Muslim, they come for you tomorrow, they'll have to come for you the next day. That has to be the table of solidarity, unconditional, it's how we fought the skinheads in the 70s, and it's how we have to fight now. We believed in black politics, but that didn't distinguish, that didn't diminish our Asian identity. I still believe in black politics, because the politics of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, and anti-racism. There has to be that link between us and other communities, unconditional solidarity between us and them. So if Tottenham, Broadwater farm people are being victimized by the police, shot by the police, like the Duggans and the recent murder of Baker, then we have to come to their support, as if it is an attack on our community. Unless we have that mindset, we will have, we will enter 
into a reductionist, culturalist, isolationist view, where we'll be picked up between one community or the other. We need to look at domestic, localized problems, but think in a globalized term. Inequality is linked to the war. Inequality is linked to the issue of neoliberalism, which is getting stronger and stronger. Inequality is linked to the issue of class. So we need to link with groups of people who do not just have the same values, <coughs> because it's an overused term, but are willing to come to that table of solidarity and develop a vision for the future. If you're serious about the word Paki, and we want to remember the legacies of people who have been murdered, then we owe it to them to build that thing. Thank you. I think it's easy for us to forget um, the sacrifices our parents' generations, our grandparents' generations made for us, the kind of uh, the road they made for us. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I guess just the last, we're saying that's the last one. Are we? No. <laughs> Coco, I don't have any questions, so I'm going to see you. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Coco, I'm a journalist, I'm the culture editor at Complex. <coughs> so um, I'm going to follow in Amit's footsteps and I'm going to tell you my happy story. The first time I was called a Paki, I was seven years old and I remember it really vividly. I was in primary school and I was in the lunch queue and I was having some argument, some child argument with another child, probably a seven year old equally. I'm sure it was along the lines of, you're stupid, you stink. That sort of thing. Just the normal kid play. And I remember her turning around and being like, well, you are a packy. That was too far. I knew that at seven. I'd already clocked at seven. Oh, no, 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 no. You have broken the rules of this fight. No. So I went to the dinner lady. And the dinner lady was an older lady, maybe hard of hearing. And I still can hear her now saying, she called you a packet? A packet of what? <laughs>
So what I found is that the problem in diversity in the arts is twofold. So the first is that young, Asian, black, non-white people don't really see people like them in the arts. So they're a bit like, hmm, that's not really for me. I can't really see myself going into the opera house where it's all just like Siegfried and dragons and like, you know, Aryan people like breathing fire. That's just not, not gonna work for me. So I don't really wanna do that. The other thing is that if you are one of those people that's like, yeah, you know what, I like it, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna create for myself. You'll find it very, very hard to get commissioned. So it's, it's, you know, I don't want to get like too, like, too pretty about this, but we do live in a capitalist society, and so even the things that we think are most pure, like arts or anything like that, it's still defined by the market. So if you create a piece of art, there has to be an audience for it. Most people that are interested in the arts are white, and that could be because they have more money and have more access to it. It could be because they're in the country where that tradition has been allowed to flourish more than your immigrant tradition, which has been sort of really promptly stomped out. It could be a number of reasons. So if you go to your book publisher and you say, I want to do a sci-fi book, they have to know that your sci-fi book will appeal to predominantly white people. So there's one of two ways that that will happen. You either have to make it so stereotypically Asian that it's like sort, sort of sexy and saucy, or you just have to walk out the door. So if you guys want to do a thing about like ninjas, they'll be like, okay, but you've got to put your packies in it. That is how it's going to get permission. So that is a problem that you have. So we think about all our great writers, your Nepals, your Qureshis, your Rushdies, but they're all slightly compromised because they've all had to do this same thing. And they've all done as best job as they can, maybe not Nepal, but you know, the rest of them have done as best they can, but it is an inherently hard thing to do. And I think that's important. It's important to remember that because we need stories. We need stories to heal. We need stories to grow. We need stories to commune with one another. And we need these stories to make people who are scared of us know that we're not actually that scary. So the stories and those narratives and the arts are extremely, extremely important. So fast forward to a couple of months ago. I was like, I'm going to write a short story. I'm going to do it myself. So me and a few other people, all the big names, Tamar from EastEnders, Riz MC, all <laughs> We all got together and we're going to like, yeah, we're going to do a book. We're going to totally do a book. We're going to do a short fiction book. It's going to be edited by an Asian person. It's all going to be us for our sake. Nobody wanted it, obviously. And then J.K. Rowling was like, oh, you're just a brown people doing the thing. I'll pay for it. And then once you've got J.K., then you get The Guardian, then you get The Independent, then you get everything. So that's what kind of happened in the world of the arts. But you need an audience to like you. And if you don't have an audience to like you, you need a patron. So let's move past the arts, because the arts is a very, very stale, stuffy area anyway. What about pop culture? Where are all our Asian DJs? Where are all our Asian fashion labels? Where are all our Asian MCs? Where are all... And I know that there is an audience for this. Every time I go to the Supreme shop, I know that there is an audience for this. I see all the Asian crew there at every grime rave. I know there is an audience for this stuff. So where are they? Where is it? What's happening? So I've been trying to look into that a little bit more recently, and I don't have the answer. And if you guys figure it out, please like hit me up at Complex. I'd love to hear from you. But my feeling is that we don't believe that our stories are valuable. We don't believe that our stories are cool. We don't believe that our stories are sexy. Maybe because we spent such a long time distancing ourselves from the black community, who was one of the few communities that like the white world allowed to be really creative. We spent so long doing that, we sort of shot ourselves in the foot, and now here we are, and we don't value our own stuff, our own things that we like to do, and that is just a nightmare. So, I don't know. My... Oh, wow, okay, no, I'm finishing up now. But I'm going to end on one thing, is that I've been thinking so hard about where Asian people are in pop culture in the future, and where we're going to end up. Specifically now, 
I've just pointed out so clearly that we're being pushed and pushed more into this kind of Islamic market where, you know, it's probably going to be even harder to get ourselves off the ground. So I don't really know where that's going to happen what, or what is going to happen. But what I do know is that every single person in this room has to believe that our stories are valuable and, and, and endorse it and do it. Go to the community centre with a really, really crap Bangra show. Just do it. It'll cost you three pounds. We have to prove that there is a market for it. We have to prove that our stories matter. And if we can do it, then maybe we can start something else. So that's all I would say. Merry Christmas. <laughs>
racist prevent strategies that are being brought in because they're not they're a bit more detached from her um, and again I think that's one of the greatest tricks of like the sort of British establishment is to trick us into thinking that we are in a post-racial society and that the only way you can be a victim of racist abuse is if you're called a packet which obviously is far more complex than that yeah that's um, is it? Is it? Oh, I've got one as well. Yeah, it's cool. Come in as a minute. Um, so, I mean, my take on this is that we just have to dash middle class bourgeois respectability politics. There's nothing to be gained from it. Um, I think that, in in particular, um, South Asians in this country have, you know, there's a certain set that really embrace that kind of 1980s entrepreneurial everything's open for market spirit and mistook that for liberation and what they did was instead of looking at the degree of privilege that they had at the beginning that allowed them to um, you know make the most of that particular narrow historical economic window uh, rather than doing that they said well look it's because of our own inherent superiority to especially working class black people and also like other working class Asians like Siletis and Pakistanis um, so I think like that's how that's come about. In terms of how do you, you know, how do you tackle that? I think some of it is automatically self-correcting, in the sense of in periods of economic crisis, in under austerity, in terms of economic hardship. I think lots of South Asian people who thought up a nice, comfy little existence for themselves will rapidly see that being taken away, um, as there's an ever more pernicious atmosphere of racism, mistrust, demonization of migrants, demonization of Muslims, they'll realize that the kind of cushy, ill-fit existence they've managed to construct for themselves isn't safe anymore. Um, they will be, you know, homogenized and lumped in with that group, and they will be facing violence both in terms of state violence and violence in the street and abuse. And hopefully that will be a lesson hard learned, and solidarity can, um, yeah, so, you know, solidarity can occur through that. One of the things that I would like to talk about is the um, rise of Hindu nationalism, especially in India. That's gone hand in hand with neoliberal marketization. What you've got is an incredibly regressive and reactionary cultural program that demands assimilation into a Hindu state, at the same time as saying India is open for market. Come and get it, boys. Um, and the people who are being screwed over twofold are on the one hand the religious minorities who tend to be poorer, don't tend to have the same access to capital, and also the Adivasi, the tribal communities, who often live on areas of land which are contested, um, often on mineral de deposits, that you know, so the, the uh, Indian state wants to see those developed, wants to see them mined, and they are the victims of state violence on a huge scale. So I think this thing about um, you know, bourgeois respectability politics, when you see it at its zenith, as in the Indian state at the moment, what you see is more and more violence being enacted on brown bodies, and that needs to be the point of criticism. Um, I think there are, there are two issues here. One is uh, what would be classified as politics of representation, and then the politics of struggle. And what's happened in the past is that there's been solidarity amongst class lines, because even affluent people in top private industries suffer from a glass ceiling and sometimes it's double glazed. So race discrimination can happen on class basis. It doesn't have to just affect working class people. And it exists in the political spectrum, in the private sector, in public sector, etc., etc. 
So discrimination isn't just bad by, uh, by working people. The, the other thing is that um, in struggles of equality and for justice over the last three decades, middle classes have actually only played a peripheral role in developing strategy and coming uh, at the forefront of devising strategies. Um, what's happened is that um, the struggles against racism came before the struggles for cultural rights. So the temples, the gudras, mosques, um, music came after really persistent struggles for equality on the streets, etc. And there's no real relationship or an analysis or narratives of how that has developed. So what the middle classes have done have gone into politics of representation, which was the dual strategy devised by the anti-racist strategy. So the number of members of parliament that exist in the political spectrum, the number of councillors that exist, etc. Uh, at one time, my view was that we made six mistakes, and all of them were in houses of parliament. So there were six MPs who were black who came at the back of black struggle, or anti-racist struggle, but actually forgot where their roots were. And today we have 36 BME, inverted commas, uh, members of parliament. Uh, and there's no anti-racist or black leadership. Absolutely not. And in fact, racism and anti-racism is off the agenda. Even the statutory bodies that have been set up, like the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, that should have been given teeth to monitor the basis of racism, has been taken and become ineffective. Apart from little things, it really does not. And in fact, they've colluded with discrimination against suspect communities, etc. That's actually where we are at the moment. So class solidarity at this moment is a very difficult issue to deal with because the black communities, Asian, African, Caribbean, have been marginalized in their communities. And we are fighting at a, at a level <coughs> which has been unseen in the 70s. Uh, we're at the back foot. We are fighting against the state in terms of policing deaths in custody, racial violence, joint enterprises where you can be sent to prison even if you are not guilty, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the state racism or the institutional racism that came out after the Lawrence case hasn't moved because the government hasn't taken seriously. In fact, the last coalition government and this government doesn't even have a strategy of tackling race inequality. So the solidarity that comes out has to come from the grassroots. And we are at a very, very critical juncture on how we develop that. Uh, because the notion of self-organization and self-determination of struggles that took place out, uh, in our communities have been atomized. And that process started from Margaret Thatcher's laissez-faire economy, which pivoted individuals against other individuals and thrashed and subdued class struggles including, for example, the minor struggles and etc. And in fact, this is the 40th anniversary of the Grundvik struggle, the first ever struggle by Asian workers supported by trading in women. Very important struggle. So I think it's a difficult question to deal with, but it's something that's imperative. Is it natural to have class solidarity? Not in the anti-colonial framework, unfortunately, but it's decisive in this scenario as we approach the growth of intolerance and the growth of uh, austerity. Um, yeah, I don't think I have anything that's going to be 
much better than what these guys have very articulately said. Um, you know, my own experience as someone that's been working class and has now you know, got a more clipped accent and went to university, I'm, I'm personally constantly always being accused of, like, you've forgotten who you are, you've forgotten whatever. And so I think that sometimes I suffer from middle class anxiety and I find myself overcompensating for it. In some sort of strange way, I feel like that's a, that's a kind of like shared societal neurosis that we have. It's like one of the sort of kind of mental illnesses that have been imparted upon us by this kind of very conflicted, hyper-competitive, cruel society that we live in. And I certainly don't have any answers for it, but what I do believe is that the kind of universal universalism of it, of the, how it has affected so many different people, so many different minorities, and so many different, well, just so many different groups, means that it is something that can be <coughs> conquered. It's something that we can spot. It's something that can't hide away in the cracks where we can't see it. It, it, will, be, it will drive itself out. It has to. It's so infectious. Um, so I hope that given the, the sort of severity of the problem, that there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel in its uh, widespreadness. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jess. Um, thank you for your question. Um, we want to turn this into a little bit of discussion as well, so if you guys have any stories that you want to share, um, anything that you want to share about yourself <coughs> and contribute to this conversation, then that would be really good as well. <coughs> if you want to, but you can just shout. <laughs> I don't think it's going to read. Okay, I have an amazing stuff. Do you think that the specific question of South Asian people has embraced our sexuality? Okay, so when we look at like popular culture, we don't see images of South Asian women, but particularly South Asian men, that are sexy, that are desirable in movies, on TV. And I think that that has a huge impact both in the mainstream and also in queer culture as well. So I'd be interested in this Oh, yeah, um, I actually did a presentation on this uh, about a month ago, and I think it's a really like, I think it's a post-colonial legacy basically, because Indians now in the mainstream, particularly the way the Western media talk about Indian people, is a very sexually repressed people, um, very homophobic, very like, um, yeah, very prudish and stuff. But we have to remember that obviously the Kama Sutra comes from India. Um, and we have to remember like, there's a lot of like pre-colonial art in India that, that represents a lot of gender fluidity and a lot of very fluid sexual activities. Um, and you could argue that the homophobia that's been imposed on South Asia is in many ways a post-colonial legacy because before the British people went there, it was all going off. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, there's some, there some mad art of like, some crazy orgies in like, pre-colonial pre India, which now would seem like the way that Indians are represented, or South Asians more generally are represented, um, is completely detached from that. So it seems to be like, from what, I've, what limited stuff I've read about it, I'm definitely not an expert, is that the British went and sort of had these ideas about masculinity and sexual, sexual respectability norms that came about and really like strictly imposed them and took away these, uh, this um, sexual uh, expressiveness uh, that existed prior to that. But um, yeah. Um, yeah, those are all really, really great points. More than what's interesting is that um, this perception of especially South Asian women as being, you know, asexual, um, sort of like, you know, you know, these lumps of brown flesh that don't really have any libido, um, wasn't, wasn't always that way. Um, up until really the Second World War, the predominant stereotype was of South Asian men as being very highly sexed, and that was posited vis-a-vis -vis white femininity. 
So the idea was always, that's what they want, that's what they're after, we have to protect the white woman by pressing the brown man. Um, in, a, in a similar way, um, whenever, uh, especially young Victorian girls would come out with something to do with sex, it would be blamed on the domestic labor of ayahs, right? So the Indian um, you know, governesses and caregivers and whatnot. So it was actually stereotypes being very highly sexed, the kind of immoderate, uh, hot orient. Um, and it's actually a fairly recent development, as you were saying, that the stereotypes gone the other way. Um, there's a really good book on this called uh, Sex, Death and Punishment by Richard Davenport Hines. Um, and it basically looks at the development of discourses to do with sexuality, both in terms of sexual diseases and also queerness and otherness, and charts it through, um, I think, the 17th century right up until the 1980s, 1990s, and really explores this period of colonialism in quite some detail. Also looks at the way in which um, the sexual immoderateness of the East then became this testing ground for new and often quite brutal forms of uh, the tr treatment of diseases, sexual diseases, and particular syphilis. Uh, it's a really, really good book. Can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, dominant narrative of sexuality, specifically related to women, South Asian particularly, over the last century, until post-war, has been uh, a mainstream erotic, nostalgic look at South Asian women. Uh, I had the innocuous um, time of uh, working with um, sex industry people in the 1970s when I, when I first came to London. Um, and um, in terms of the British sexuality question, both in terms of men and women, um, the mainstream see them as asexual without any sexual uh, need, if I can put that. Um, but the narratives have changed over the last 50 years, primarily because of the commercialization of Bollywood. And also, uh, in India, the debate about the third gender issue, which has constitutionally become a massive issue, queerness, gay politics. Uh, India is, for, for example, one of the only constitution countries that recognizes the third gender in courts. Um, so sexuality has become an issue in a political and cultural sense, but it hasn't taken root in a personal sense, in a debate that is extended to a bigger <coughs> cultural level. Um, so it's, it's still an undercurrent discussion. It's not in the mainstream, it's still a taboo. Uh, and the, def the defined role of women is always one of a subjective rather than an uh, objectified. Feature or, or a narrative. And I think um, I'm glad this question has been asked because I'm tired of talking about racism. <laughs> For the last you know, 30 years, all I've been asked is about racism. You get pigeonholed as an anti racist activist just talking about that. The reason why I didn't answer that question from a lady isn't because of what <coughs> some people found. I just think you should have done, she should have done her homework about racism before she asked that question. And after 60 years of working on this, I'm not an educator. People should have the basic decency of being informed about what racism means rather than ask and confuse it with issues of prejudice or, or 
I think sexuality is an important issue. It's very important that we begin to discuss it properly without it being restrictive. And I think if the anti-racist struggle is going to move forward, that's going to be one of the features that comes to the fore. And it's debated in a very transparent, non-oppressive way. Because I think gender, race, class are the three features, or the three tools that move our movement forward. very, very particularly put, um, it is a crazy stereotype that doesn't make sense. Uh, the South, so many countries, in fact, in that part of the world have had a very fruitful sexual lives. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a billion people now? Yeah, a billion people now in India. So I'm, you know, I'm sure they all, 1.2, 1.2 billion people now. So I'm sure they're all, you know, of, of differing sort of sexual appetites. But um, just to point out about, uh, uh, about kind of why we have this stereotype, Going back to my kind of article compare, one thing that I learned a lot when I was doing Victorian literature was that, and I, I believe a lot of the stereotypes have come from Victorian literature and come from the Victorian uh, English imagination, is that when they imagine these places, they perceive them as, as almost blank spaces. It was a, a place for them to kind of psychologically uh, play out their fantasies, play out their values, play out their norms, and then they just kind of stuck. So when you read, you know, the short stories of Roger Kipling and things like that, you'll find, you know, you're reading these descriptions and you're just like, that is, no, that's not real. And it's not, it's all in the imagination of the Victorian mindset. Um, people that have, you know, read all the, the Foucault and stuff, you, you know that, like, uh, the idea of the, the, the sexuality of the Victorians is something that still haunts us today. It's, it's something that, you know, feminists are trying to shake away from. And these, all these kind of bars were set up in the Victorian age for a generation that was just unbelievably preoccupied with sex. I don't know, God had died for them, Darwin had happened, and so it was just all about the booty, I guess. But, like, <laughs> like and the empire, the countries that lived under the empire, have, have suffered from that kind of Victorian mindset um, of sexuality. And I believe that is what still informs our kind of view of, of, of particularly men as being these sort of stilted, eunuch like creatures, which is just, it's just far from the truth. Uh, yeah, any other questions, guys, or anything to share? Yeah, um, I'll just shout. Um, so I work um, in the field of ending violence against women and girls, um, and that's all women and all girls, not focusing on one community. And um, whenever I tell someone that, the first response tends to be, oh gosh, it's really bad what's happening in India, what's happening in Saudi Arabia, without recognising that actually two women a week in this country are killed, and actually sexism and misogyny is a universal concept. Um, however, so I really want to put that out as a starting point. But I am conscious as a South Asian woman that there are elements of, of um, gender inequality within my community, which of course are mirrored in other communities, but because that's where I come from, I'm interested in that. And I suppose one of my concerns is whenever I want to address that or explore it with people, I'm so conscious of the critical racist background which labels South Asian men as these sexual predators lusting after white women or subjugating their women not allowing them out of the house, that I feel like I we can't explore this without it reinforcing negative stereotypes. So my question is, that's a real issue, which affects women across the board, but South Asian women, which I'm passionate about. How do we address some of these intersections of inequality and ensure that South Asian women are very much leading this movement towards racial equality um, without reinforcing stereotypes about Asian men?
as like a ridiculous and hard question. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure to be honest. It's definitely like, yeah, it's a very big question. Um, so, um, yeah, my first thoughts would be that obviously, like talking about it as like a post-colonial issue isn't very useful in terms of like the day-to-day -day issue of the fact that like there are a lot of South Asian women facing these problems. So I guess it sort of like it would have to be discussed within like a community setting, sort of within the South Asian community, um, without probably without white a white gaze sort of adding these sort of ideas to it. And that's probably about as good as I've got, I'm afraid. Um, so I'm sorry for that, but hopefully Ash can chime in. Um, I think that's a really, really great question. I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, if there's some time for you to shed some light on how your experience is called, you're thinking about it, that'd be great because you have the expertise here. Um, my initial thoughts are, I think one of the reasons why as politically conscious South Asian women were sometimes in this double bind of wanting to point out gender oppressions that are being held back by how it's going to be received by particularly a you know, neo-colonial European gaze is because the mechanisms for dealing with gender oppression are gender oppressions in themselves. So the solutions presented by cartel feminism, saying more arrests, more policing, um, more deportations, more imprisonment. These are all gender oppressions in themselves. And I think South Asian women know, in some ways better than anyone, that the minute you start looking for solutions in those areas, the sooner it's going to rebound back on you twice as hard as it will anyone else. And I think that's one of the reasons why South Asian women in particular um, feel held back from uh, maybe fighting gender oppression with, you know, as fiercely as, as they should be able to. Um, the other is the way in which feminism has been mobilized by and co-opted by imperialism. So Spivak talks about it as white men saving brown women from brown men. And I think people are acutely aware of that. Um, so I've just laid out the problems, what are the, what are the solutions? short answer is I really don't know, but initial thoughts are empowering, thoughtful, nuanced community work. So rather than relying on the coercive, carceral power of the state, empowering communities to confront within themselves. So that means well-funded Asian women centers, for instance, well-funded domestic violence centers. Um, improving, uh, so, so also, having the solutions not just be police-based, right? So giving women the means to leave without necessarily imprisoning their abusers, which lots of women don't want to do for various reasons. Also, don't feel empowered to do if, say, their own immigration status is precarious. Um, we, need, uh, we need to look at the ways in which um, these state structures actually further the silencing, the censorship of vulnerable women. Uh, and. Briefly, there's a really good collection of essays about this double bind. It's not so much about South Asian women, uh, but it was edited by Gloria T. Hull and I think like Patricia Collins. It's called uh, All the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men, But Some of Us Are Brave. And a lot of it is um, dedicated to dealing with this problem of uh, gendered oppressions faced by black and brown women and how to confront that. So another reading recommendation is what I have on the book. Thank you very much, Jack. I think it's a relatively easy question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you raise it, and if you feel it embarrassing, raise it again. And if you feel uncomfortable, raise it. And you get around it. I don't think you should be afraid of talking about gender equality. If men don't like it, or the communities are against you, 
stick to their guns. But tell me what our history is in Salvo. Um, when we set up the Salvo Monitor Group, we were set up together with Salvo Black Sisters, so a section of the Salvo Black Sisters were part of the Salvo Monitor Group, etc. And our first <coughs> cases were about domestic violence and racial violence. Okay? And we made a decision as young activists at that period that we will unconditionally support women leaving their households if they were suffering domestic violence and not be under any pressure from either the community representatives or their parents and families for the women to stay with a violent man. That was an unconditional discussion. And if he hadn't made that decision, there wouldn't have been that space created for women to make that choice of living, of leaving that violent husband. So I think it's linked to a number of other issues. I think I don't believe in cultural relativism at all. I don't think you can define an oppression of women because you can explain it by a cultural need for a patriarchal society to exist. I don't think it's possible to do that. I come from that tradition, and I've <coughs> always argued that. And I think the third issue is about self-organization. If I am arguing about black self or Asian self-organization, which is fighting for equality, it'd be incumbent for me to support women's self-organization in our communities, even if there is the most serious, uncomfortable questions about male power in our communities. I think there is the issue of patriarchy that needs to be taken on. And, and I think there is the issue of sexism that needs to be taken on. I mean, I've been to India and I've dealt with rape cases with the Solicitor General in India in the last few years. And I tell you, it's not a stereotype that you have people in a rep sexually repressed country because of the growth of religion, etc., who have access to vile pornography without any debate about pornography on their uh, mobile, accessible, and their notion of women and sex sexual gratification is based on that violent nature of pornography. That's actually what's it based on. I'm not dehumanizing or criminalizing young Asian men because of commit crime. But that, what I think is, in a relative term, the rights of women is more important and absolutely critical for them <laughs> to be safe, and that right is needs to be cherished and needs to be progressed, etc. So I don't, I don't, I think I'm not an academic. You can tell I'm not an academic. Obviously, I have a master's in laws of evidence, but not in the social history stuff. But I can tell you that the sea change, even in terms of spaces that we moved from the 1970s when the Indian Workers Association called us and the South of Black Sisters as anti-community for simply raising the issue of domestic violence, for people now saying domestic violence is absolutely important to deal with. Obviously the issue of patriarchy, position of women, still remains to be addressed, and it's a massive challenge and burden that we need to come But it has to be the center of our struggle on a personal, social, and political basis. So raise it and raise it loudly from the rooftops of the I will support you. Yeah, I mean, amazing question. I personally don't feel I have any valuable comments that I can make about it, but I just want to say this is an incredible question, one that is far too often sidelined. I think it's a crying shame that 
South Asian women have to pick between their gender and their race constantly, all the time. And I also think that maybe white feminism has to own up to facilitating that as well. Um, yeah, any other questions? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, well, um, Dave Cameron's uh, going to give, like, Muslim women, I mean, he's like, age Sorry, like, you just uh, speak up a little bit. I feel like, just with the news about Dave Cameron giving uh, Muslim women um, English lessons, sure. but I think they're predominantly for uh, South Asian women as well. Uh, I was going to say, brother, do you think it's a good idea, or do you think it's, I don't know, like, do you think it's, it will, Stop, um, uh, the gentleman's asking about uh, David Cameron's policy to describe English lessons to immigrants and those who can't speak English in this country so that they can keep their citizenship and want to know your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think obviously it's incredibly, it's, it's sort of smacks of like neo colonialism and racism the way he brought his policy about and he cut funding to the the ESOL forces anyway, so it's sort of, it's highly political the way it's done. He talked about submissive, submissive Muslim women, but you could apply it to like, him talking about submissive South Asian women in general. And it's just like, it's gross, like, neo-imperialistic uh, assumptions about sort of South Asians, about Muslims being savages who, you know, keep their women locked up in, in cupboards, not being allowed to speak English so they can't assimilate. And at the same time, there's about one million British people in Spain, and only about three of them can speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no, there's no, there's no about any discussion about that. And I think if he, I think genuinely, quite clearly, David Cameron doesn't care about actually implementing any policies that will actually stop terrorism. Otherwise, he'd stop funding Saudi Arabia and stop doing all these other sort of shady deals. <laughs>
brown women upon entry to this country and say that nothing you say will be taken at face value. We do not trust your subjectivity, so we will police and will brutalise your body. And I think that is a continuing thread, and you can see it in lots of David Cameron's recent comments. I mean, if, 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 it's a, if, if it's a level playing field and an objective discussion without any permutations of politics, obviously learning language is absolutely perfect. I wish I could speak five languages. I can only speak. <coughs> uh, my mother spoke Hindi, Urdu, and Gujarati, and spoke very little English. So. Uh, I think the debate <coughs> that Cameron raises is in, in the context of so-called extremism and uh, prevent agenda, where he believes empowering Muslim women specifically, not any other women, learning language will somehow reduce the notion of people turning towards IS. I mean, it's a ridiculous notion. Uh, I have been involved in public order offenses, riots, on four occasions. I can tell you the people who are with me are people who can articulate English very, very well. We know exactly what we are doing, we know how to fight, and all the people can speak English very, very well. It's not our mothers who are coming out of the streets. It's us lot who have been on the streets. It's actually us lot who are raising the whole issue of war and the unjust treatment of Palestinians, not just our mothers. And that is something that the government can't tackle with. Um, and the prevent agenda is actually a massive, massive um, uh, failure <coughs> because at first, if you look at the manner in which it's organized, as soon as 9-11 uh, took place, Blair and his supporters began to talk about the death of multiculturalism. They blamed multiculturalism uh, uh, and the growth of it in terms of respecting different cultures, not uh, coming together and coalescing in terms of a British notion of value. Um, it simply doesn't work in our communities. The notion of multiculturalism in our communities isn't followed by state policy on multiculturalism. We will live together because we like living together in communities, or if you're in ghettos, we are in the ghettos because of our economic situation, not because we want to live in a ghetto. We want to move out. It's because we can't afford to move out that we live in a ghetto. I live in Norwood Green in Southall. In the 70s, only white people lived there. Not a single Asian person could not just afford, but wasn't allowed to be in Norwood Green. Now it's 45% Asian, okay, with a mixture of Italian and, and white. But this notion about multiculturalism giving rise to extremism, extremism without actually analyzing <coughs> the own foreign policy and its failure to deal with the central issue of Palestine is something that needs to be raised continuously and constantly. Uh, and I think this is another example of de demonizing a community that also feels under massive siege. Uh, and it's perpetual, it's intensive, and somehow, somehow, that, that dam of prejudice has to be broken. And it's 
at the moment impossible to say how that is going to be broken. Unless, in my view, we begin to work together to break it. But I think Cameron is speaking to an audience and he's not speaking to us. He's speaking to an audience that wants to strengthen uh, more restrictions and draconian legislation in this country because he believes there's an undercurrent of opposition of young people and old coming together to move against anti-Tory policies, etc. I think that's what the case is. And I think this fortress that's being built around Europe <coughs> and the whole way the migrant issue has been developed. These are people who look like us, who are, I mean, one thing I wanted to say, which I forgot to say, and I just want to say this last, I don't want to take more time on this. Is, there's a perception that when my parents came into this country, they had this vision of Britain paved with gold. And it was an easy opportunity to get jobs. That's far from true. Our parents were intelligent. They'd gone through independent struggles. A partition in 1947 that took 3 million people's lives from across the border. They had a political notion of where they were going. Some escaped to Kenya because they built the railways there. Other came as civil servants. They were intelligent people who came simply because they couldn't live in a condition developed as a result of the partition. And we still don't talk about the prevalence of partition and its impact on our communities. And we are the same refugees <coughs> as the refugees coming from Syria, Iraq, soon from Libya and Yemen. And if we create a fortress, because we create the notion of the other, I mean, forget about David Cameron, look at Trevor Phillips's comments about the Muslims will never change. This is a person who was the head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. I mean, if there was ever an Uncle Tom, he is one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just well, don't want to keep on out saying, because I don't want to take your time. So. Again, I concur with everything these guys said. They've said it very, very well. Um, I think that education should be free in general, so people want to access <coughs> English language. Yeah, everyone should be able to. I do think it's a political move that David Cameron said Muslims are not South Asian. He wants to get the UKIP vote who are all terrified of Muslims. Or actually, sometimes, I don't know, I'm kind of torn. On the one hand, I think it's a political move. On the other hand, I actually genuinely think he's an ignorant tosser. Like, <laughs> like, I did a, a few years ago, I did a project where I got Etonians to come work in Newham School. And talking to these Etonians, like, they're all very, very, you know, oh, jolly hockey sticks and all very nice. Like, they're all very polite and stuff. But they, they actually are like, stunted. They have no vision of the world. They, have the, the, they, they drive every... I don't know, every day from their house in Kensington along the M25 to Windsor. And that is honestly the whole world that they have ever seen. And they weren't bad people. They were just young and just genuinely just stupid. <laughs> so it's funny. So when David Cameron's all like, oh, you know, we have so much cultural segregation, I just think he's the most segregated. He doesn't know how to talk our language. He doesn't know how to talk anyone's language other than Etonian. So I don't know if he... <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Um, can you repeat the question? Uh, I think the question was how can salvations in the community heal ourselves from the damaging um, emotional and psychological impacts of racism? Um, is say, yeah, I think things like this are quite useful to this in terms of that, like just talking about self, uh, these issues between ourselves, amongst ourselves, and discussing sort of the ways that racism recreates itself and the way that it's still very present in our lives. And I think, I'm not sure from a sort of mental health aspect, but generally speaking, I think just like acknowledging the fact that like, or sort of fighting back against the idea that we live in a post-racial society is one of the key aspects of that, because I think that's one of the most damaging forms of racism is this myth that we've been sold about post-racial Britain and multicultural Britain and how we're all living in some sort of harmony where it doesn't matter what colour skin you are, everything's okay. Um, but I think, yeah, like just talking to each other and just creating safe spaces for ourselves is like a, a key issue in terms of like dealing with these uh, huge uh, impacts. Um, really great question. I think the um, first thing would be to bring back the practice of having a well-funded healthcare system. That's equipped to deal with mental health issues. One of the massive changes in the 1980s was that cut back on psychiatric nurses who work in the community and gave the powers of sexually noticed police. And the police, as we all know, are racist as hell. Who, who when they're feeling vulnerable, are feeling like they're risking themselves to other people, but turn to the police and they're our lead. And in terms of uh, who police choose to refer to mental health services and then who they choose to you know, just lock up, send to prison, um, that's intensely racialized. So I think that would be demand number one, and that's a, that's a winnable political demand. Uh, the second thing would be thinking about radical self-care. So Black Panthers had a slogan, very famous one, survival pending revolution. And that's not just to say, listen, when it gets too much, focus on your own stuff. It's saying that working together, loving each other, caring for one another, is in itself a radical, anti-racist, decolonial act. So one of the many things that we did, for instance, was our school lunch programs, our school programs, worked in terms of addressing the specific healthcare issues faced by African-Americans like within their community. I think that there is room for a parallel or an analogous process like, within, within our society in terms of um, salvations. The other thing would be um, what Franz Fanon, bloody love Franz Fanon, um, what Franz Fanon talks about. He says that uh, racism, colonialism is a deep wound, is a deep trauma, and the only way of fully addressing that is um, decolonial violence. Um, he, talk, he talks about the necessity to, uh, like the cathartic power of revolution, revolutionary activity. Now I'm not saying like turn around and punch the nearest white person. Um, definitely not saying that, you're too lovely. Um, but talking, like locating um, healing within confronting oppressive state mechanisms of racism and state violence, I think is also central to this question. This country is one of the few countries that hasn't developed any research, qualitative research, extensive research on the impact psychologically 
uh, on people because of Islamophobia or, or, or for racial violence. America, Canada has a huge amount of research on it. I know that because we run a trauma service at, uh, at the monitoring group for people who either have suffered murders because of rape uh, or because they suffer low-level depression forms of racial violence, which uh, brings isolation to them, anxiety, stress, and all sorts of other things, including mental uh, health problems. Uh, I know from the 30 families I've worked since 1993 have suffered murders, 29 of them are split up because they haven't been provided with any expert, sensitive, uh, appropriate service by mental health services or by psychologists, etc. In fact, uh, in this country, there are only two kinds of studies that have been done. One is by Dr. Agri Burke at South London Hospitals, which looks at trauma on children who suffer some form of racial violence. And then by Dr. Shashi Shashi Dharan at Coventry University, who looks at the trauma suffered by victims of torture uh, who are refugee or asylum seekers, uh, and the propensity of damage that, and self-harm that can take this by themselves. Um, I think it is an, it's such a crucial issue. Um, but getting statutory agencies to agree with it and putting resources to it, it's a massive problem. I, I, I'm not as optimistic as you <coughs> are about it being a minimal issue, but I think it is absolutely necessary to do it. Um, but we have to be aware of a number of issues. One is the stigma attached to mental health. Um, I, for example, when I did the Zayn Mubarak case, um, and we took the prison authorities to court and had a public inquiry on it, the director general of prisons at that moment, Martin Neary, agreed that 85% of the people in prison had mental health problems and actually shouldn't be in prison. 85% of 82,000 suffering from mental health problems. Historically, what happened was so-called asylums that existed were broken down, and the people in it were actually transferred to prisons rather than to mental health establishments. And so we have an industrial complex in prisons that doesn't support mental health problems, but actually makes money on people being in prisons because it's privatized. So mental health is absolutely crucial but it has to be led by organizations that understand the stigma of racism attached to it. In the way that, for example, somebody called Dr. Um, Joy DeGroy has done on post-slavery syndrome. Uh, the impact of slavery on people over generations in American societies. That's the kind of research that would be absolutely critical uh, in the British domain, and it includes damage is done on Islamophobia itself. So I'm really, really interested in mental health. Um, my brother and sister both have suffered extremely grave situations in life from their own kind of mental health issues and have failed to get treatment and have fallen through the cracks. And it, 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 it's a real hardship every day and it is a taboo, um, which needs to be spoken about. Because mental health isn't just one individual's problem, it is a societal problem. So I read an article a few years ago from the New Yorker, and in that they said they studied different uh, schizophrenics, schizophrenics from various parts of the world. And they looked at, I mean, schizophrenia is a very like, broad uh, illness, and you can have many different types and forms. And, and you know, But I'm thinking of a stereotype one, I hear voices in my head, that stereotype, paranoid schizophrenic. 
they spoke to a number of them and they asked them what the voices in their head said. And what you found is that the voices changed like nation to nation. So obviously America has high gun crime problems, it's a, it's, it's a very violent nation, that is the nature of America. And so most of their schizophrenics were pointed, sort of said that their voices told them to kill, to hurt, to maim, to burn, to do those sort of things. They went to different countries around the world and they actually found that in India, funnily enough, the voices in their head were being like, oh, my house isn't clean enough. <laughs> and it's sort of laughable now, but it's evidence, hard evidence, that mental illness is a cultural creation. Of course, people have dispositions based on their genetics, and of course, but it is a, a, a something that has been hugely exacerbated um, by cultural things that happen. So the research saying that uh, people that suffer from racism have PTSD doesn't surprise me, but I'm so happy that research is being done because we all have an obligation to each other and to the wide world to ensure the well-being of our neighbours. And the more we can sort of use the hard science to prove it, the hopefully the, the more pressure we can apply on, on, on our NHS, on our governments, on, on people to do stuff. Because it's, it's not a science issue, it's a cultural issue. It's, it's as much an issue as us sitting here today talking about the word packy. We have to talk about this stuff. We, it, it's, it's the same, it's one and the same. So I'm really glad you brought that subject up. think we shouldn't bother going out of our way at all to be honest. I think like getting validation from the white man is a poison chalice and something that we shouldn't bother wasting our time with at the end of the day. Uh, if, if, um, 
if they don't think that you're British, like so be it. Like it's up to them really. I don't really, I don't really care if some if David Cameron thinks I'm British or not. If I adhere to British values enough, like that's his problem, not mine. <laughs> I think, I think it's a losing game to buy into it. Also, what are the British values I want to associate myself with? It's like, to me, all I can see that's distinctly British is coronation chicken and colonialism. I hate both those things. Um, so I think, I think it's a losing game, and I think it's something that we actively need to reject, this nationalist, like, jingoistic logic. Um, I, th I think it, all it does is hold us back. In terms of this thing about indirect racism that you were talking about, that covert racism, I think, listen, if racism was just a matter of people saying like mean shit to you, I could cope with that. I'd be fine with it. But it's policing, it's housing, it's education, it's, the, it's mental health. Um, it's all of these things that add up. So how do you fight it? You self-organize, you talk to each other, you agitate, you read. You do stuff that's just fun and for yourself. All of those things are radical acts. Um, and I think that what we really need to do is reject the logic that the only thing that matters is how we, how we see ourselves in relation to race. Reject that racism is just a racialized self-perception. Recognize that it's structures, it's institutional, and we need to work as hard as we can to deconstruct those institutions. Look, if somebody says to you, are you British on an individual level, uh, Britain has different grains of values and political um, uh, pluralism. I mean, David Cameron is British, so is Jeremy Corbyn, but they have very different politics. You know, John Keats is an anti-imperialist poet in some of his senses. So you have a pacifist movement, you have a socialist movement, you have a trade union movement. You have different cultural pluralistic, multi-political uh, dimensional notions of Britishness. So there isn't an attractive definition of, of, of Britishness. I, I, I mean, I have a, I don't support England in football or cricket. I'm quite happy to support Brazil and another country. <laughs> you know, I like all sorts of kind of music. I like Indian music, but I also like, you know, reggae music and I also like soul and jazz. And I'm quite proud that I like that. No problem with it, you know. I like different kinds of films, so that's one aspect of Britishness. Uh, I, you know, in terms of uh, real centers of multiculturalism in this country, there are only four or five of them, and they're around urban areas. You know, London, Midlands, East Midlands, Lancashire, and bits of Yorkshire. That's the heart of multicultural center, where about 80% of the black South Asian population in okay. And the debate about whether the British becomes insidious if it's directed to you as a collective community, where you have to keep on proving your Britishness simply because you oppose government policies or programs. That's where it becomes insidious. And that's very difficult to deal with. Let me give you an example, and I, I don't really need to demonstrate it, I think people are conscious of it. As I said, I work in Rotterdam. And people I work in Rotterdam uh, have no politics whatsoever, apart from anti-racist, some kind of identity politics. But they are under so much pressure from government that they will even meet Zionists to prove that they're British. 
yet they don't believe in Zionist politics. So the pressure for them to be seen as integrated into a government agenda is immense. And I just laugh at that thought, but for them, it's a basis of survival. It's been looked at as a community on the way they go. It's a Muslim youth association. It's a very secular values. So they believe in religion, they believe in right of religious freedom, but they want to divorce it from the state. And they believe that it is important for them to move forward, but fight against racism. They boycotted the police as a result of police actions on 5th of September by arresting. They boycotted the police for two weeks. It's never been done in this country where you say I'm boycotting the police as a community. All right? And the, the police were running around the mosque and saying, we want to talk to you in the mosque and we don't want to speak to you unless you deal with what you agree with. So there's a daily perpetual um, collective push for the Muslim community to prove itself to be British. It's what used to happen in the African-Caribbean community and still happens in terms of proving that they are non-violent. I mean, you talk about mental health and stereotypes. What are the greatest stereotypes that exist in this country in terms of policing and black communities? This notion that somehow black men are superhuman. They can take super violence against them and inflict super violence against them. That's an insidious notion. And they suffer the most brutal attacks on them as a result of that stereotype. But it goes without challenging. And in the same way, the collective perception of a particular community of not being British can only be dealt with if it takes place at a different level, in the mainstream, in the communities, and at a political front. At the moment, the voice in the mainstream is very dim. You have only different. In the communities, you begin to challenge it, but there is no solidarity that exists around it. And I think that's why I keep talking about the table of solidarity that you need to develop. But within the Muslim community, that self-organization, the importance of saying, we have a different notion of being British, which may be something that you want to develop, or we have this notion of British which we do not agree with. And that's been done over generation in terms of political struggles. I don't support any wars by Britain. I'm not Muslim, but I can freely <coughs> say that. Right? I don't like David Cameron because he's from the ruling class. And I'm a very close friend of John McDonald's because we worked together for 25 years. <coughs> I don't agree with him on everything, but I agree with him on the central tenets of bringing power back to the communities and to people so they can actually devise and strategize on how the country should be done. I think it's an impossible task, but I think it's important to create. And I think it's important for us to look at issues where that stigmatization, that collective punishment, becomes an issue of civil rights in the way <coughs> it was being developed in the, uh, in the American world. One of the problems of the absence of South Asian narrative in terms of struggle is, in the last five, five decades, is that our struggles on racism have been matched or influenced by struggles of civil rights in them across the Atlantic, because of the way the criminal justice works, because of the demands that are. But South Asian communities haven't developed the, its own strategies by adding value to the struggles of um, uh, of anti-racism. 
by analyzing and, and devising strategies come, that come from the independence movement. In the same way, for example, I'm not saying he was right, Martin Luther King did looking at the Satyagraha movement in, in India, for example. But he created its own nuance within the American situation. We haven't done that. We've just added and attached ourselves to the struggle against racism because of its permutation is important across the Atlantic. So in we have Black Lives Matter, I'm not gonna ask I'm not, I'm not going to it, but at the moment, for example, there's an organization called Sikh Lives Matter because of the nature of the Indian state. Or Dalit Lives Matter because of the repression on caste. There are global struggles taking place with them and it's so and I, I don't, I'm, don't di I'm trying not to digress with your question. I'm trying to say that there are collective punishment on communities that place, and that's a hard issue to deal with than me personally arguing with your individual person. I mean, I get asked questions nearly every week on a train because I talk a lot, as you can see. And I talk to anyone. And the first thing I'm asked is, where are you from? So I say, South And they ask me, where are you really from? I say, South What they mean is, which country did you originate from? Okay, and so my color and my face is never going to make me British in some people's eyes. I'm not saying in every people's eyes, some people's eyes. And I accept that fact because I think my racial discrimination I suffer is not a handicap. I don't mean that word in a bad way. Actually, it's a strength that I bring to the cause for equality. And I, in the same way, I think we need to build strengths while suffering the injustices we do. And we have to overcome the collective stereotyping of a community as homogeneous, as anti-British. And I think that's going to become more and more a bigger narrative as we come to the elections, especially in terms of Europe and in terms of the next election, which is going to be formed on migration and British values and more. Those are the three issues that's going to be formed.